Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. You know, there's questions about whether or not Trump is really politically uh, immortal. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back. One of our most popular shows last year was getting deep into the weeds of presidential politics with my old friend Jonathan Martin, Politico's politics bureau chief. With the Iowa caucuses 10 days away, we decided to bring J-Mart back and nerd out on everything you need to know about 2024. There we go. You got me. I can hear you, baby. All right. Excellent. Let's just get into it. Let's rock and roll, baby. We don't need any introduction. We covered a lot in this show. Is there a chance that Trump could stumble in Iowa or New Hampshire? What happened to the DeSantis campaign? Why is it that everyone underestimated Nikki Haley? Would Trump be weaker in the primary if the legal system never came after him? Why nobody of any political heft in the Democratic Party challenged Joe Biden? The dire threat to Biden from third-party candidates in the fall? Why Bibi Netanyahu and John Roberts may be the most important people affecting the 2024 election? All that, and I promise you a lot more, you're going to love this conversation. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. You know, in previous cycles, people start paying attention in January in a way that they haven't. Let's just talk big picture right now. I mean, this has been a bit of a sleepy primary compared to previous cycles. (laughs) I mean, we've had one front runner the entire time, unlike recent open Republican primaries where, you know, we had ups and downs. Let's just be real. What are the possible non-Trump dominating the whole thing scenarios right now? Sure. Let's let, well, let's and then we'll talk about the the individual states. But what, what are the scenarios that are outside of the, sure. the big obvious one? I mean, first off, I've mentioned this before, as have many others. It's not a profound or uh, a new insight, uh, but I think it's worth mentioning briefly, which is this is much more of an incumbent cycle than it is an open seat cycle. Uh, even though we're technically an open seat cycle for the Republican Party, uh, Trump is much closer to an incumbent president than he is uh, running uh, in an open seat because he's been the party's nominee the last two elections and was the former president. Um I think at this point where we sit in early January, the most likely scenario is Trump wins convincingly in the early states and then wraps things up on Super Tuesday. I think the um, the detour to that, Ryan, is that um, Nikki Haley emerges in second uh, in Iowa. Uh, DeSantis leaves the race. Uh, there's pressure on Christie to leave the race that intensifies going into New Hampshire. Uh, and Nikki Haley is able to consolidate the non-Trump vote in New Hampshire and either defeat or tie or lose narrowly to Trump in New Hampshire. Uh, and then, you know, there's questions about whether or not Trump is really politically uh, immortal. And uh, maybe this guy is vulnerable. And um, I think then you look to uh, South Carolina is sort of Armageddon, uh, the the place where uh, Trump's strength is going to be truly tested. Um, and uh, look, 
I think that um, Trump is stronger in South Carolina than he is in New Hampshire. I think the question is how much how much stronger there is he. Uh, does Nikki Haley's background in the state get her that much in a moment where politics is so nationalized and Trump is such an enormous political brand? Um, those are all questions that I think the press corps would would have in front of them if that scenario that I mentioned before about Iowa and New Hampshire comes to fruition. So for all the reporters listening to this, if you're fantasizing about three weeks in Charleston, 70-degree weather after Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, you know, the the clash between Haley and Trump for the soul of the party. Not sure it's going to happen, but for, it, <laughs> but for it to happen, I think it would take, obviously, uh, the ball to bounce Haley's way. Um, if we're going to get to Armageddon in South Carolina, like, there's got to be a few things happen first. We haven't had you on the show in a while, and last time we talked yeah. – I think you know DeSantis was still a. I think we were t- we were talking at the point where the balloon had started to deflate for sure, yes. um, but it, it, mm. he hadn't reached this point. He's still in second place in Iowa, right? Yes. Haley, Haley's not not ahead of him. Give us your assessment of. And by why the way, he didn't put it together, and I, and you know, and let's not. I don't, you know, maybe we won't count him out. He could still surprise people in Iowa, I suppose. But give me a little bit of the of your assessment of. What happened? His campaign. Yeah. The one piece of analysis that's really broken through is him saying the indictments yes. really screwed him over. That just that sure. just rallied the party around him, and you know, which fair, I fair think, enough. which I think for him, Ryan is like one half fair game analysis and one half rationalization for his own flaws. You know, right? Yeah. Both things. I think in his case, both things can be true when it comes to that that take. You know, um, what are the flaws? Well, first of all, let's stick with the like the what if. I mean, I think the sub race within the race in Iowa is like the organization versus momentum. One of the age old questions in, in primaries: How much does his organization matter in Iowa? He has been to all ninety nine counties. He has created an organization in every one of those counties. He does have the backing of a popular sitting governor, as well as you know figures like Bob Vanderplatz, who have some following at least in the pews uh, of, of Iowa churches. Does that get you anything when all of the bad buzz is circling you like a vulture, right? And yeah, Nikki yeah. is moving. Like, our folks going to stick with you? Are those Iowa people that your campaign, your super PAC have, have counted for as locked in for you? Uh, are they still there in, in all of those counties? This will be a fascinating test. If we're trying to find something interesting in an otherwise yeah. dull race, I think th- that momentum versus versus um, uh, organization question is important. So what, what were his flaws and why wasn't it just Trump's indictments that have sort of uh, shaped this race over the last year? Look, I think the biggest one is um, he's not a compelling political figure. Uh, he's not able to relate to voters. He's not able to relate to uh, other politicians. Uh, he's obviously a smart individual who's gotten by in politics by hard work and by and significant candle power, but he does not have a capacity for human connection. And that's really tough to get to this level of American politics and overcome. Um, and when you can't connect to people, whether they're other politicians or their donors or most importantly their voters, I think like that that's a big a big hit on you. Uh, 
I think obviously he had massive organizational issues, um, uh, namely trying to have a super PAC run his campaign. But the heart of that, Ryan, is that he didn't have adults around him that he placed his full uh, faith and confidence in. There was no Don Evans, the, the longtime friend of um, George W. Bush. There was no you know, Valerie Jarrett type figure who was obviously close to Barack and Michelle Obama, let alone figures like Bagala, Carville, Rove, Axelrod, Pluff, the, the kind of maestro type figures. He's trying to do this. This MacGyver style. He, his wife, a pack of chewing gum and five paper clips. And like that just doesn't work when you're running for leader of the free world. Um, you gotta have people around you that you trust. You gotta have people that have relationships. Uh, and if you don't have that, you're trying to do this all on your own or with your wife. It's just not going to work that well. And so I think for all the process coverage about the super PAC and the campaign and staff bleeding and this and that, the heart of that is the refusal to create uh, a, a network of advisors and friends who are equals, they're peers, they're people that you trust and that can represent you and that can actually help run your campaign. This is not an easy question to answer, J. Mart, but it is sort of the question. Yeah. How much would this race be different if um, the legal system had stood down? Yes. If, um, there were no indictments. Right. Um, I know. I mean, we can't run an experiment without that. Right. But. Well, I mean, yeah. And so, like, to be fair to Ron DeSantis, um, you know, even if he did have like the charm of Haley Barber meets like Willie Brown. Um, you love Haley Barber. <laughs> I mean, well, she doesn't. He's not Haley Barber meets Willie Brown. Uh, he's, <laughs> too uh, great. Those, when I think of like J Mart characters, those two are like. <laughs> they can they can win over a room. Let's put it that way. right? <laughs> um, but like, even if he wasn't that uh, or even close to that. um in fairness to him, he was still up against a significant challenge. Obviously, the fact that uh, the legal system is coming down with indictments that help Trump paint the picture he wants to pitch, which is, I'm under assault. I'm a victim. They're coming after me. They don't want me. They're scared of me. And that helps Trump rally his base. And I think it freezes other Republicans uh, or even brings them over to him who weren't that psyched about Trump's third campaign, right? Uh, so obviously, that, that is significant. You can't take that uh, away. Um, but there's something else that I think was working against DeSantis, too. And I, I read about this uh, earlier in the year um, after I went to Tallahassee. Um, you know, his mission, Ryan, was always difficult because of the nature of today's Republican Party. You know, he was going to have to forge a coalition of what you could say in kind of rough terms, 2016 terms, was like the Ted Cruz wing of the party, the Marco yeah. Rubio wing of the party, and the John Kasich wing of the party, which is to say like never Trumpers, kind of like Republican establishment folks who aren't never Trumpers but kind of want to move on. And then like movement conservatives, like the Chip Roys of the world who are in fact, for, you know, for DeSantis, who are like real, real uh, 
you know, 140 proof conservatives. That's a tough group to put together, right? Um, And he was always going to have to do that, even if Trump's, you know, legal jeopardy hadn't landed uh, in his lap. And I think that that was always the challenge, his personality aside, his lack of sort of peers and staff aside, uh, and whatever happened externally with Trump aside, trying to put together the coalition in today's party of what's not the MAGA crowd. It's a pretty disparate group, right? Uh, all those kind of people. And I think that that was always his challenge. And his flaw was that he always defaulted to what you could call the, the Ted Cruz wing. Because he was consumed with trying to get the Trumps right on policy. And you see it today in his rhetoric and his campaign ads. He's still running against Fauci and say Trump didn't build the wall Um, as though like you're going to one day wake up like 50,000 Iowa Republicans and say, you know what? It turns out Trump wasn't the conservative I thought he was. Uh, Boy, uh, this guy really let me down when it came to COVID and building the wall. Um, that's not the heart of Trump's appeal and trying to get to his right and win over kind of movement conservatives. It may have gotten him that Ted Cruz lane, Ryan, but there were a hell of a lot more Republican voters that he needed to get that he was never going to get running to the right and, you know, mocking the establishment, calling Nikki the establishment, this establishment, that. Who the hell do you think still left in the party and up for grabs that doesn't want Trump? Well, like a lot of them are what you could call the establishment and you're running against them and. 2023, I just, it never made sense, right? But that was always his default because I think he is a conservative. That's who he is, Ryan. So I think it was weird for him sort of not to be that way. Um, But when I look at these governors who never stood up and said a word, Brian Kemp, Glenn Youngkin, Eric Holcomb, um, you know, you name it, the folks that don't want Trump to be the nominee again, but never set foot in the primary, never helped DeSantis, never helped Nikki, or at least haven't yet. You know, where are those people? Why wasn't DeSantis trying to win them over? Why was he so fixated on going after Tony Fauci and constantly pivoting right? I just never got it. The other dynamic that these guys seem to go up against, I mean, this whole thing does have a Lucy on the football quality of, you know, eight years later, uh, all of us talking about how Republicans can beat Trump and no... Nobody's fi- nobody's figured it out in the in those eight years, but um, once the general election polls started showing yes. Donald Trump beating yes. Biden, yes. how much of a, a how much of a fact do you think that was? And obviously, we we want to keep you know we we want to um, leave open the possibility for for surprises in the next yes. few weeks. So you know we what's a great careful. barometer? A great barometer of what you could call the kind of anti-anti-Trump wing of the Republican Party or the conservative movement is the Wall Street Journal-Ed page. Yes. And, you can s- <laughs> you, you, and they'll flip in about three weeks. You could see this creeping yeah. into their copy the later in the year we got in 23. There was almost an anger at Biden for being so weak politically. <laughs> yes. And for, yes. And, and, and for, for these general election trial heats that had Trump winning, because it obviously deprived- What can, what can you say? It deprived all of Trump's opponents, plus the journal crowd, the obvious attack, right? Which is, he's going to get smoked in the general, even if you liked MAGA this and MAGA that. Like, he's a loser. He lost once, he's going to lose again. And I think once you, you sort of lost that, you could see that seeping through uh, with some of the kind of anti-anti crowd, um, yep. which is like- like, come on, Joe, 
you're, you're, you're killing us, man. You're denying us the best argument against Trump because of your own weakness here. And look, some of this is them rationalizing their own voters' affection for Donald Trump, saying, look, what can we do? Biden was so weak, he made us be for Trump for a third consecutive time. If Biden had been stronger, we wouldn't have you know, defaulted to the guy in the red hat. Some of that's a rationalization, obviously. But I mean, there, there, there's no question that that deprived a lot of the sort of anti-Trump right and also obviously the non-Trump candidates from perhaps the most salient case against Trump, which is uh, this guy's going to lose. But here's the other thing that, that – uh, something that has fascinated me uh, all year is – because of the nature of our tribal politics and our um, our like sort of media um, silo politics, like the two most obvious arguments to make against the two frontrunners in the race are ones that other people in the party can't make. So if you're running against Donald Trump, like the obvious case to make against him is the case Christie makes, which is like. Donald Trump's profoundly uh, flawed. He's unfit for high office. He doesn't care about the Constitution. He's not a small-day Democrat, and he should never come close to the White House. Well, if you're a Republican, Ryan, you can't make that attack because you're putting on the blue jersey. And heaven forbid you sound like MSNBC. And yeah. there's, no, there's no bigger sin in Republican politics than sounding like MSNBC. This stuck out to me in that trove of documents that I think Maggie Haberman and Jonathan Swan got uh, before the first debate that DeSantis' super PAC wanted him to use for that first debate. The attack line against Christie was, yeah. you're, you're trying out for MSNBC. Because that's the key. If you use the language of the other tribe, even if it's like the most obvious attack matter. in the world, yeah. You yeah. can't signal to your voters that you sound like the bad guys. And so same with Biden. So like the most obvious case in the world against Biden is the case that Dean Phillips is kind of making, but that no other governor or senator ever made against Biden because they didn't, never got in the race, which is you're a good man who had a great run in public service, but you're profoundly unpopular and you're too old to serve for five more years in the most demanding job in the world. It's time for you to pass the baton. You can't make that argument against Biden if you're a Democrat, Ryan, because you sound like Fox News. And heaven forbid you sound like Fox News if you're a Democrat and raise Biden's age because that's what the yeah. other tribe does. So here you have the two frontrunners with like obvious vulnerabilities that their own party cannot raise against them because of the Negative tribalism. Negative partisanship. Of this it's, it's, it's just, Is it's our God. Everything exactly. these days. It's our God. I mean, there's nothing else. It makes these primaries really freaking boring. <laughs> well, you said it. <laughs> um, maybe they're a little boring, but they're important. Let's talk about Nikki, Nikki Haley. Um, I always thought that she would surprise because she always has surprised. Yes. Um, but I don't think I could put my finger on why. Yes. Um, I, you know, I, I, I wonder if you've thought about this, if you've been out on the trail with her, yeah. what, you know, what made her, you know, and look, we, I think sometimes we overstate, you know, her rise. She, as we pointed out, she's still not even in second place in Iowa, but she, she beat DeSantis on an, on a number of metrics, uh, yes. uh, l last year. What, what did she do right? What, did, and why, why did people underestimate her? You know, Trump bailed on these debates, and the debates last year effectively became the vetting process for the non-Trump candidates, much more than any performance in early states, much more so than any straw polls that 
I think have largely now gone by the wayside. Um, it's basically these debates, right? And I think once she showed that she had moxie, that she knew the material, and that she was aggressive uh, in a way where, you know, she was taking on Trump enough, but not so much where it would offend kind of the broad middle of the party. I think, like, there was going to be a non-Trump candidate and she obviously used those debates to make it her. I mean, I, I just it's not yeah. more complicated than yeah. that, you know? But it was the debates. Uh, that's the, the That was the, the thing that I had think so. Eyeballs. And no doubt Trump's decision to skip these debates was a strategically good decision. And by the way, I should say not just debates, but like press coverage too. This was a mistake. You know, uh, Rich Lowry wrote a column about this for Politico in part. You know, DeSantis thought that, like, because his base and the conservative base doesn't like the press, that means you can blow off the press and actually be actively hostile to the press. Like, that's, oh, my gosh, such a miscalculation because nothing shapes the year before the primary like the tides of press coverage in both parties, yeah. right? Like, press buzz and the and the perception of candidates as shaped by the press – and process stories on fundraising, endorsements, yes, debates, is so central to the year before the primary and really the walk up to the primary itself. And I don't care which party because voters consciously and unconsciously absorb that coverage. How many times, Ryan, have we talked to voters during the course of primaries and we've asked about a candidate? And they sound like pundits. It's not like, oh, I like Kamala Harris's health care plan or like I like Donald Trump's immigration policies. It's much more like, well, I liked candidate X, but I don't know if he's going to make it. Right. It's always like the great euphemism right. is right. I kind of right. like candidate X. I don't know if he's going to make it, which is like yeah. that, that voter's way of saying like the press coverage has been brutal for the last six months and they're going to lose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyways. They've always got one eye on on how things are playing. Yes. And like yeah. – they don't want to be for a loser because unlike general elections, primaries are much closer to picking your fl favorite flavor of ice cream, right? This is not picking good or evil. This is not picking right. like light or darkness. This is picking like strawberry or vanilla, right? Now, that's changed obviously somewhat in the Trump era because there are folks, some of them who still vote in the Republican primary, who do think it's good or evil. But for the most part, it's more of a preference test, right? Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. So basically, we could sum up 2023 with Trump strengthening and Biden weakening politically, despite the fact that the economic news last year uh, continued to get better. Yes. Let's talk about Biden a little bit. How dire do you think things are for Joe Biden right now? I mean, one of the things you were prescient about is that there were going to be third-party challenges. There was going right. to be a primary challenge. Right. Um, primary challenge, I think, weirdly, never uh, has not uh, 
become much of a of an interest to to the press yeah. and Dean Phillips is sort of you know and Marianne Williamson whose name you right. barely hear but sometimes right. still shows up at like double digits yes. in polls in New Hampshire right um what let's 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 start there why did yes. the why did Biden's growing weakness and terrible yes. numbers with a lot right. of key Democratic groups not not invite a challenge yeah well yeah. it invited a challenge but Let's say, let's start with not invite a serious challenge, I guess, if you don't sure. think Dean Phillips is serious. Yeah. And then why did the Dean Phillips thing just sort of peter out? Sure. I, I, Dean Phillips, the congressman from Minnesota, like his rationale in tiptoeing into the presidential waters over the summer was like explicitly to get other candidates in. Like he wanted to be the Gene McCarthy to Bobby Kennedy, but without actually having to declare his candidacy, you go to New Hampshire, he's wanted to like put it out there and maybe i mean yeah. it's been report it's been reported now he literally called pritzker and, and whitmer and like tried to lure them into the race they wouldn't take his phone calls um yeah and he said that it, wasn't said bullshit it. he really did he really was not trying to set himself up as the guy i mean he was trying to get other people in. And he went on at least two sunday shows over the summer uh and like one of which he actually said he told chuck todd i mean the press he said you know, basically, to borrow a phrase, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, if you're listening, um, you know. Get in the race. Yes, exactly. And I think the reason why no Democrat beyond Dean Phillips challenged Biden is simple. It's the same driving factor has shaped our politics for nine years. It's Donald Trump. Yeah. It's Trump. Yeah. I mean, look, Donald Trump is the biggest figure in both American parties, okay? He dominates his own party. That's plain to see. He's likely going to be the nominee of his party for a third straight cycle. He's a, a leader of a enormous movement, um, has you know, reshaped one of our two political parties in his own image, made it into much more of a right-wing populist party. Um, but he's also, Ryan, the biggest driver in the Democratic Party, too. Reshaped the Democratic Party in some ways, right? right? Look, the the one unifying force that, that adheres everybody in that party from AOC to Joe Manchin is a fear and contempt of and for Donald Trump, right? Donald yeah. Trump is the best case for Democratic unity there is. He has been the best organizer, motivator, fundraiser, and election mobilizer for Democrats for eight years now, going back to like the special elections in the spring of 17, and certainly including the governor's races that fall, both of which Democrats won. That's like an eight-year run of Democrats living off Donald Trump. Now, the upside of that is like they've created a ton of new grassroots activists. They got elected a ton of new Democratic figures in Congress and state houses in 2018, a class that is still climbing the ranks of the party. They've raised on godly amounts of money. Democrats, Ryan, we're old enough to recall, they used to be the ones that had problems raising money, right? It was the Republicans who tapped into business. Absolutely. So there's so much that Trump has given to Democrats. And I think of those many attributes, unity is the most important one. But he's also put a chill in them. He, he He has sort of made them small C conservatives, right? Because what he's done is he has made them so fearful of, of his, his, um, uh, what he represents and the threat they believe he represents, that there is a play it safe mentality. There is a get in line mentality. There is a sort of um, uh, hierarchical mentality, much more of a respect for leaders. I mean, the Democrats yeah. have become the, the top down party, right? Like they're the House of Windsor now. It's like um, 
you know, they don't do insurgencies over there now. And if you had told me that a Democratic president would be in the 30s um, and like and 81 years old and, and 81 <laughs> years old going into his reelect and wouldn't have a single challenge from a governor or senator. Uh, I tell you, you're crazy. But the reason is Donald Trump, because no Democrat wants to risk his or her careers by being the person that weakened Joe Biden and that brought Donald Trump back to power. And so all those candidates, they saluted yeah. and they got in line because what was the firing offense for Biden? Unpopular? Sure. Perhaps too old to serve a second term? Sure. Um, but with Democratic voters, the bigger risk than, than either of those two things is the possibility of Trump coming back. And if you weaken but don't beat Biden, then it's on you. You have blood on your hands if you're Whitmer or Newsom or Pritzker and you ran. So they all just sort of bit their, their tongues and got in line. I think, Ryan, a really important moment when the history of the cycle is written is going to be from November to really March of 2022 and 2023 because there was no red wave. Democrats had a better than expected cycle. And I think a lot of the Democrats who were prepared to stand up and say, Mr. President, here's your gold watch. Enjoy Rehoboth. You've had a great run. Thank you for your service. Adios. They didn't say anything because how could they, Ryan? Maybe the old man was on to something, right? There was no red wave. Democrats had a really good cycle. So how could you stand up in November and December after the midterms and, 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 and push the old man out? You couldn't. And instead, yeah. that dog never barked. And we got past the winter into the spring. And it became, well, maybe he just won't run. Maybe I don't have to say anything. Maybe he'll do right. the right thing. Well, wait. Was never yeah. going to happen, right? Of course he wants to run again. He's sitting yep. president. Anyways. He, I, one thing he likes is being president. There's one thing that Joe Biden really, I, I've really likes. I've noticed that. It's <laughs> being president. But in fairness there's, to Joe Biden, no... how many city presidents have walked away from the job, right? It's a pretty sweet gig. You have a nice plane, helicopter, a couple of houses. It's not bad, right? And look, he could always, and in his mind, he could always argue that it really was about something or is about something bigger than his own ego by saying that he beat Trump once, Trump's a danger. If it's going to be Trump, it has to be Biden. Well, that's the gamble. And that's the gamble. We know he thinks that. And so I, I think that's that's why he doesn't, I think that's why he doesn't have that sense that you were describing in the other uh, potential candidates of, they don't want, nobody wants to be the one that fucked this up and, yes. and reelected Trump. Biden Biden thinks by him stepping down and not being the guy that that he's he's handing uh, the, the race to Trump and, and Biden would regret it obviously if yes. if, uh, if if he didn't do it and Trump wins yes what's the let, let's talk about the third party dangers uh, lurking for, for for Joe Biden in a general election that is uh, a rematch of of, of Trump. Versus Biden. Yeah. I know Doug Sosnick loves to point out that the biggest difference between 2016 and 2020 yeah. was a viable or viable third party options that the double doubters could go to. The people who hated yes. Hillary and yes. Trump, they could park their votes uh, so, somewhere and that helped elect Trump in a, in a couple of states. In 2020, the double doubters didn't have those options right. and, and, and Biden won. Are they going to have those options in twenty twenty two in twenty twenty four? And how much of a danger is that to Biden? I think it's the most significant element outside of Trump's legal standing that will shape twenty twenty four. And and unpack that a little bit for people who don't understand what the double doubters are. Sure. 
Um, Donald Trump was elected president not because of – or not only because of Hillary Clinton's shortcomings, but because there were two other options on the ballot. Jill Stein, the Green Party nominee, and Gary Johnson, former GOP governor of New Mexico running as a libertarian. Millions of voters had a place to go on the left and the right. And Hillary Clinton needed a lot of those votes and she needed them in key states. And you just don't take, take my word for it, just math, right? I mean, look how many votes Stein and Johnson got in the key swing states in 16. So as Sosnick has pointed out, Ryan, and as you reference, you know, there weren't those options in 2020. It was a binary choice. If you were tired of COVID, you thought Trump didn't take it seriously, you were just sick of Trump generally, your alternative was Joe Biden, right? And the fact that this race is shaping up to be closer to 16 than 20, I think is um, the dagger at the throat of Joe Biden's reelection, to borrow a phrase. Uh, if Joe Biden in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona has Jill Stein, Cornell West, Bobby Kennedy, and no labels candidate to be named later all on the ballot. Joe Biden's facing the real prospect of not hitting 40% in those states. And it, it, then the question is, what is the Donald Trump's floor? Is Donald Trump's floor higher than Joe Biden's floor? Because Biden's going to lose some of those votes to those other candidates. Now, will Trump lose some folks too? Absolutely. But the bigger threat is to Biden because Biden's mm. coalition is much more disparate than Trump's coalition. Biden's coalition – I come back to what I said earlier. The, the Democratic Party is unified around one thing, like being against Donald Trump, and it unifies everybody from Manchin to AOC. Well, Joe Biden needs that the entire breadth of that coalition, right? He needs the country club, bushy Republicans who are appalled by Donald Trump, and he needs the young activist DSA members who are appalled by the, the war in Gaza. He needs both of those people. I mean, to put it in Wisconsin I mean, terms, he yeah. needs, you know, he, he needs Waukesha and Madison, right? And that's pretty tough when you have a despised Israeli government prosecuting a war in Gaza that this administration is largely siding with the Israelis. So, you know, can Biden get those kids, the under 40? The far left, can he get them either away from not voting at all or away from voting for Jill Stein and Cornell West? That's a huge question. And can he get the suburbanites, the country club crowd, can he get them off of no labels? I think that's a huge challenge for him, right? Um, so I think, Ryan, it's it's a profoundly important question. The double doubters are people that don't like Trump or Biden. Um and there's lots of them. Uh, it's just that Biden's facing more of a challenge because his coalition is, is different than Trump's coalition. Um, the one person I didn't mention there, Brian, I think it's more complicated, and I think this is also a hugely important question, is Bobby Kennedy. Because I think we yeah. have less yeah. – I, th I think we have less of a yeah. sense as to where his, his voters are coming from. And I think – yeah. Fox News kind of built him up as a as 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 a someone exactly. that would harm <laughs> Biden, and, and then he did the old and, switcheroo. <laughs> and you can see how Fox is now moving on on him. So I, I think yeah, that's right. 
he's an interesting factor that I think is also totally under uh, underexplored. I think it's going to be uh, Absolutely. fascinating. And also, by the way, speaking of Biden not having much of a primary, I mean, we forget this. Like, he did have a primary from Kennedy. What would history be like if Kennedy stays in the primary? Just in New Hampshire alone, right? Would that last name and that kind of like far left, far right, anti-vax appeal, would that have gotten him Indies and Republicans pulling a Democratic ballot in New Hampshire if he's still in the, the Dem primary? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. And would it, you know, would it would it have mattered, right? Given right. Biden, you know, pull, pulling out. Right. All right. So you one point that I I think is worth putting an exclamation mark on is Bibi Netanyahu is one of the most influential figures yes. in our general election yes. this year. I I don't think we have any idea the impact on that. I mean, I will right. say we have never seen aides, low level aides in the White House and on the uh, presidential campaign, right. writing letters protesting. Uh, a core foreign policy decision <laughs> by their boss. Have you ever seen anything like that, John? Our, our colleague Michael Schaefer had a great column um, recently about how Republicans are scared of their voters and Democrats are scared of their employees, which was I, yes. you know, <laughs> which was fun. I mean, um, I mean, talk yeah. about like a blinking red light yes. on the on the dashboard of the Biden campaign, and it's on Capitol Hill. It's it's in every state capital. It's obviously on college campuses. The Democratic Party is fractured over this issue, and the assumptions of the older generation of Democrats of kind of uh, automatic support for the Israelis uh, is is sort of um, based in a time gone by, um, and. Um, uh, well, think- the good thing for the for good thing for Biden is that uh, Bibi Netanyahu is not a Machiavellian po- uh, politician who would ever want his actions to influence the outcome of an American election. Never, never. <laughs> uh, I was actually in but- Jerusalem when Romney went over there in the summer of 2012 to give a speech, and you know, Bibi. Um, well, oh yeah. Well, let's just say that um, uh, I think Bibi was quite fond of it, Romney and. Perhaps more so than the incumbent American president at the time, um, and maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe Bi- look, maybe Biden, maybe Bibi makes a different calculation, and he real and he and he decides. Well, that, what's his? Do you think it's crazy? Though? At the end of the day, do you think there's who who who, who does Bibi Netanyahu want to be the American president come January 2025? Well, is it is it up for debate or is it clearly Trump? Tell me where Biden, or maybe he doesn't care. Tell me where Biden is on. Gaza six months from now, you know. Yeah. Also, yeah. tell me, tell yeah. me, Ryan, if BB's even prime minister six months from now. I mean, obviously, as long as there's that's a hot true war, too. that's true. As too. long as there's a yeah. hot war, it's gonna it's gonna be tough to have an Israeli election. But look, BB's well, but d- domestic politics has reasserted itself in Israel suddenly. His his yeah. calling card was security. BB may have yeah. been an asshole, but he was our asshole, and he was going to keep us safe. That was always the line about BB, and he lost that on October seventh. Now that has not come home to roost yet because they're obviously prosecuting a war still to this day mm-hmm. in Gaza. But once hostilities come to an end or a ceasefire, there's going to be an election in Israel, and there's going to be accountability. For Joe Biden's sake, the question is: Does that happen before this this fall? You know, and how much? Does um, does the does sticking with BB during this period? Um, how, how much do young voters, young progressives, hold that against Biden and vote for right. Jill Stein, and or right. vote for or Cornell West, vote. or just not vote? Right. Yep. 
Um, all right. So Bibi Netanyahu, very, very important figure in this election. On the other side, we have a cast of legal characters. And I think this yes. one is much harder to game out, Jonathan, yes. but I'm, I'm yes. curious to see what you think. From Tanya Chutkin to Jack Smith to yeah. uh, Chief Justice Roberts, you know, we haven't talked about this, but it's probably one of the most important, unusual things that's going to happen this year yeah. are the, the the potential trials of, of Donald Trump. Trump. Um, they obviously strengthened him during the Republican primary. I think the smart thing that we all said was, yes, these indictments might help him with Republicans in a primary, but yes. surely that's not going to happen in, in, a, in a general election. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the, on the politics of this kind of unprecedented situation. Well, I said earlier that I thought the biggest um, factor shaping this general election was, was going to be the third party candidates in the ballot outside of Trump's legal jeopardy. So I mean, I, look, I think right. that is the biggest right. issue shaping this race. Has Trump been convicted anywhere by election day? If so, has there been a sentencing? If so, what what is the sentencing? Uh, where is his appeal? Uh, both of um, you know whatever the the, the uh, guilty uh, uh, verdict is um, uh, in the process uh, has it been taken up and dismissed? Has it been taken up? I mean, I think this is so crucial to what's going to happen in, in the race. There are Democrats who think that Joe Biden's only chance to win re-election is for Trump to have a conviction by election day. That th that is. Probably wouldn't hurt at this point. <laughs> the the get out, get out of jail free card for Joe Biden uh, is for Trump to get into jail. Um, um, you know, what's the jurisdiction that finds him guilty? What are the charges? You know, I think there's just so many yeah. what ifs. Um, uh, of all the unknown unknowns of this cycle, and um, there's obviously plenty of those that we don't even know. God, there's so many known unknowns in this cycle. Uh, and most of them uh, connect to Trump's legal status. Look, clearly yeah. the judge in D.C., uh, Judge Chutkin, <laughs> wants to move expeditiously. Jack Smith wants to move expeditiously. Um, how fast can <clears throat> Jack Smith uh, get Trump's immunity claim through the D.C. Court of Appeals? How fast can he get it through the Supreme Court? When does that trial start? Is it March? Is it April? Is it May? I, I think that's probably the venue where Trump could face a conviction by election day. But um, yeah. yeah, you know, there's there's obviously more to more to uh, unpack there as as the uh, the weeks and months go along. I'm happy that we have Josh Gerstein and Carl Kyle Cheney plugged for two of our great well, reporters here. It's going to be an unusual election because we're all suddenly going to have to be legal analysts in addition yes. to political analysts to, to 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 cover to cover this thing. Yes. It's now, were you a law a, school a, guy, Ryan? Did you go to law school? No, 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 no. Can you no. can you fake it? But I can, like, of course, as a, as yeah, a good, pundit, good, I can good. fake exactly. legal analysis. Look, I can crime good, analysis. Good, you good. name it. Um, I, I, it's part of the job. How about hot do wars you, in Eastern Europe and the Middle East? You can do that yes, too, right? I, I, I can dabble in foreign policy too. So, good, uh, good, good. Glad to hear it. What, glad to hear it. For, look, the, one of the, uh, just to go back to our Biden conversation and the reasons why Biden is doing this, is there anything you're seeing message-wise from Biden world that strikes you as different than 2020, 2022? Yes, yes. You know, the Biden yes. people seem to think like, we know how to do this. We've, we've done it twice before. 
and it's just kind of a, a paint by numbers run okay. against uh, Trump. You know, Trump uh, is, is Trump is an extremist. He's a threat to democracy. He's been indicted ninety one times. We're on ninety one counts. We, you know, they have a, a, a pretty pretty good case against him, and it's been successful. And that's you know that's been the the case for Biden uh, staying the course as the as the nominee. Yeah. Anything new, and obviously plus abortion, right? It's yes. like the old 90, 1992, uh uh, and don't forget about healthcare. It's the economy stupid, and don't forget about healthcare. It's it's MAGA stupid, and don't forget about abortion. That's totally what it is. And and ideally for Democrats, Trump's a felon, and don't forget about abortion. Right? So, <laughs> yes. but, yeah. There's a lot to unpack in the MAGA. A lot. A lot is contained in there. But anything new? Anything different? So so for I should have mentioned this. Um, uh, a minute ago, but I do think that the no labels candidacy does merit a little bit more discussion because I, if Trump's the nominee after Super Tuesday on March fourth, look, they're gonna find somebody, right? There's gonna be probably a former Republican as the standard bearer, and I think that's basically a safety valve, so that if Trump is convicted, he is a felon by election day. A lot of center right people in this country have somewhere to go. They can vote for Larry Hogan, the former governor of Maryland, whoever the no labels candidate is. Uh, but yeah. man, that's that's the risk to Biden because Biden needs those votes, right? Anyways, um, yep. I'm glad you asked this, and we, we should close on this because it's topical. Because the president's going to use um, January 6th uh, to do a couple of events, one in Valley Forge, uh, the other uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, um, to talk about. I think Ryan, what what you would allude to is kind of the 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 MAGA alternative, right? I can't that, I can't help but interject that this the 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 Charleston thing must have been a sop to Jonathan Martin. But please, uh, go, go ah, ahead. I know well, I know you're going to that event. <laughs> I was going to say more of a sop to one James Clyburn, but um, if there's still room, that's true. At the, that's if true. There's, if, there, if there's <laughs> still <right>. there, <laughs> if there's still room at the Renaissance on the corner of King. King and Wentworth, and I can get uh, a decent you can get a room. Hit. Yeah, a decent <laughs> hit of, of, uh, of Rodney Scott's barbecue on Upper King. I'll, I'll do it. Um, no, so in all seriousness, um, there's no question that Joe Biden feels like he is playing a signal role in American history by holding back the tide of authoritarianism and protecting American democracy. Yeah. There's also no question that Joe Biden's campaign and Joe Biden's advisors and Democratic operatives generally know that the way to beat Donald Trump is the 2020 model, not the 2016 model, which is to say attacks on Trump's character and conduct don't cut ice like attacking Trump on policy and portraying Trump as somebody who has extremist policies that are bad uh, bad for you and your family, whether on uh, abortion rights or on economics. And yeah. I think the, te- the, the, the great temptation of Joe Biden um, is to run on norms and to run on holding back authoritarianism when Joe Biden – a Paul's Paul knows that voters vote about them. Voters are voting on their lives and their futures and their pocketbooks and their rights. They're not voting on norms and they're not voting on uh, the trajectory of the country's democracy. Now, some of them are, but guess what? They're already voting for Joe Biden. If those are your issues, Ryan, you're probably already a Joe Biden voter, right? Um, so, I think this is going to be a sort of tension to watch. The impulses of Joe Biden 
to run in this lofty way to go to the Valley Forges and the Charlestons and the Gettysburgs uh, and who Statue of Liberty, Pearl Harbor. I mean, who else uh, knows where is next? Uh, and talk about the big themes that I think motivated him to run in 2020, which were obviously what happened in Charlottesville. He talked about it a lot then. And I think January 6th is kind of the equivalent now. The tension between Joe Biden really caring about those issues and Joe Biden and his yeah. staff knowing that those issues aren't the best motivators for swing voters. I think this is an interesting one because I think this is still the subject of a lot of strategic debate among Democrats. And the folks who would disagree with you would say, you know what? People said that in the fall of 2022. Yes. And then yes. it, it and they will point to uh, some blue wave areas of oh, the country yes. and say it, it actually norms and democracy and authoritarianism where that was where candidates were able to elevate that yes. to work everywhere. But where they made it central, um, th you know, that's where the where, where the wave uh uh, crested Michael Podorzer, who who um, I, I think is the sort of leading you know former AFL CIO political director. Yeah, Pod, that, that's yeah. his. Yeah, that's his argument on this is that you know there was a blue wave in part of the country and a red wave in part of the country in 2022, right. and the the common denominator in the blue wave areas was where Democrats made MAGA extremism yeah, right. and you know he would argue it's a whole basket of issues that it's not just it's not just ju just norms um where they made that the salient issue where they were able to spend the money and raise it and make sure voters were focusing on that yeah. when they went into the, the voting booth they did well in other places like the Santos district on Long Island right. where they didn't do that and the issue and abortion wasn't a salient because yeah. abortion is always going to be legal in New York yeah. um and crime and immigration and those other republican yeah. issues were Anyway, that I think that is the strategic issue for for the Biden for for the Biden campaign. To which I think a lot of Democrats would say, "But who's voting in a midterm and who's voting in a general election? It's a different set of voters, and yes. you may and you may be able to get um, swing voters in a in a general election of a midterm cycle uh, running in that fashion." But when it comes to the much less political, much more apathetic voter uh, in a general presidential election, you got to talk about bread and butter and their lives, right? And what's in it for me? What's in it for my family? How am I going to, you know, get cheaper gas, cheaper groceries, a better job, a good education? Um, and I think it's almost a Biden story itself, Ryan, because Biden, I think, is absolutely because you know because then because then he's talking more about the economy and if 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 the soft landing is real and yes. they're a year from now the economy is genuinely That's something right. that voters are responding to, it points much more in the in, in your in your direction in terms of the issues are on his side. Um, Bill Clinton had a line when he was trying to deflect from the the attacks of 92. He said, um, voters care more about their future than my past. And I think American voters going into the general election of 2024 are going to care more about their individual and their family's future than about Donald Trump's past. Now, there's a way that obviously you can meld both of yeah. those things into a compelling message, but the voters and their interest have to come first. Uh, and Ryan, 
you go to war with the voters you have. Not the, <laughs> to borrow a phrase. To on, a good note to end on. Actually, just another Clintonism that you know explains uh, Trump's success, of course, was uh, wrong and strong often beats right and weak, if I've got that right. Um, he said that in 2004. No, exactly. Explaining why Kerry lost to Bush. And I think that there is um, there is something to that, especially at a time of tumult and uncertainty. You know, obviously it was post 9-11, the Iraq war then. Obviously now it's with, um, uh, you know, d- two wars abroad. Uh, but I think now that that certainly is going to be part of Biden's challenge, just showing that he's a strong, compelling figure that can, that can govern and lead, you know. Yeah. And – that gets back into the age issue and just the visual nature of exactly. Biden on the stump and um, how voters respond to that. And we didn't talk extensively about this, but um, you know, politics is a lot about performance. Yes, and especially in an era when, when voters there. are consuming news and information from the corner of their eye. On their phones, on their laptops, on the TV that's up at the you and know, so much bar. of what. Break- and so much of what breaks through from the corner of your eye, as you know, is the most caricatured, uh, you know, uh, version of, of, of these candidates, right? Jonathan, thank you for doing this. We'll check in soon. And Ryan, uh, let's I'll hope s- that folks I'll listen to Island, all of this podcast, not just let's hope folks listen to all this podcast and not just the most salient part, which obviously we're talking <laughs> exactly. about. No, uh, deep not having Willie Brown, Haley Barber, Swagger. Yeah, deep dive fans, they listen to the whole thing. We don't, you know, <laughs> we, we won't just, we, we're not just going to throw out out of context Jonathan Martin clips. <laughs> They're going to listen to the whole thing. Thanks, Thank pal. you, Happy sir. New Year. I'll see you in yeah. Iowa. You Thanks. too. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Thank you to Christoph Zajak-Denek for field production here in Los Angeles. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. Email me at rlizza at politico.com. And please subscribe to Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.